The rising inequality and growing political instability that we see today are the direct result of decades of bad economic theory. It's time to build our economy from the bottom up and from the middle out, not the top down. Middle out economics is the answer. Because Wall Street didn't build this country, great middle class built this country. The more the middle class thrives, the better the economy is for everyone, even rich people like me. This is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a podcast about how to build the economy from the middle out. Welcome to the show. We're recording this the middle of February, Nick, which means uh, we're into tax season. So yes, I'm we sure are. I'm sure you're busy. You've got all your receipts out, and yes, you're exactly you're filling out the forms like a like a good American working through your taxes, right? Or using the TurboTax. What do you? <laughs> which software do you use, Nick? <laughs> yeah, not not me. Nope. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I say this. I raise this. Obviously, um, <laughs> you're not doing your own taxes, which speaks to uh, I think the point of this podcast that. We kind of have two different tax systems in the United States, Nick. There's the one for uh, people like me, where in fact, uh, I don't I don't actually itemize anymore. My taxes are simpler. I take that standard deduction, but I have to fill out the forms and I do my taxes myself. I get I get the download the W-2 from you. Thank you very much, Nick. And a few other uh, 1099s and stuff like that. And I fill out my own taxes and but mostly the tax I pay to the federal government has all been withheld. Either it's a small refund or I've got to pay a little bit. It depends on how the years go. You, it's a very different world. Yeah, a much more complicated world. Well, complicated in in one way, simpler in another, in that you hire somebody or a team of people to actually not just do your taxes, but manage your uh, money in a way to, well, not... I don't know, minimize, pay less, I don't know, be efficient. I don't know what word you want to use. You know, we definitely try to be smart about it without being unethical about it. Right. And and let's be clear, like when Trump uses the word smart, he means unethical. Unethical. But, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But in, in your case, you actually uh, uh, don't want to be unethical. You're trying to be Tr- Trying to avoid it. Yeah. It's such a crazy, screwed up system. And, you know, the American tax code today is so riddled with exemptions and, you know, loopholes and deductions and all this stuff. It is impossible for a person who has a relatively complicated financial situation to do their own taxes. I mean, you just, you, it would just simply be impossible to do it unless you devoted half the year to trying to figure it out and do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that our guest today, David K. Johnson, would argue that that is stupid and unnecessary <laughs> and counterproductive and uh, worse because David has spent, you know, more or less his whole career sort of investigating America's upside down tax system and exposing the loopholes that are in it that advantage 
the wealthy and big corporations and and frankly disadvantage everybody else. Right. And and more than just loopholes, Nick, the way the way it's written in force in a way uh, that it really encourages uh, people to cheat. There's yeah. a lot of cheaters out there. Yeah, and there are. This system is built for cheaters. It is bi- built for cheaters. It is built for cheaters. But I actually don't know that much about that. And it will be very interesting to talk to David about what he thinks and what the, at a detail level, what, what actually is going on. My name is David K. Johnston. I'm a former New York Times attacks reporter and a former president of Investigative Reporters and Editors, which is the 6,400 member organization of people who do the kind of work I do. Uh, I'm a best-selling author, and although I have never taken a law school class in my life, and therefore I'm not a lawyer, I have been on the faculty of the Syracuse University College of Law for 15 years. I used to teach the law of the ancient world, which is a way to get students to understand the underlying theory and principle of modern law. I now teach undergraduates a pre-law course on uh, to get them ready to go to law school. You've uh, done a lot of reporting uh, and writing about taxes. I was hoping, David, that you could explain to me how and why it is that our tax system is structured to advantage Nick at my expense. Well, it it certainly is structured that way. (laughs) American tax law is the most political law we have. It's not based on ancient, well-established principles that have served civilization for at least 2,500 years. It's based on who is able to rent the votes of lawmakers and get them to adopt favors on behalf of people. The official government version of Title 26 of the U.S. Code, that's the tax code, is almost 4,000 pages. I am in the process of writing a book proposing an entirely new federal tax system. Nothing radical about it. Everything in my proposal is well-established existing law. What I do is throw away roughly 3,700 pages of the existing tax code. That's where the favors are for people who own assets, invest in real estate, invest in in fossil fuels, and a variety of other things that we favor in the tax code, sometimes for reasons that make sense, but most often for reasons that have only to do with political pull. See, Nick there, a fellow traveler. We were just talking earlier before before you uh, called in that if I was benevolent dictator, my tax code would get rid of all deductions and exemptions but the standard one, raise the standard deduction, get rid of everything else. And now there's, uh, at that point, there's you put all the lobbyists out of business because there's nothing to jigger around with on uh, to advantage people like Nick. Well, let me tell you that when I first set out on this project, and, and I began my career as a teenager when I was in high school, writing for two little uh, shopper newspapers in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, And I began it with taxes and explaining taxes in plain English, not the way government bureaucrats, you know, hand out press releases that are designed not to be understood. And at the age of 19, 
it got me a job as a staff writer at the San Jose Mercury, currently the sixth largest newspaper in America. And I was on the front page quite quickly. So I've spent my whole life, not every day of it, but throughout my life looking at taxes. And there are basic principles on taxes that are agreed on by everybody in the tax business, right, left, middle, apolitical. And our tax code has nothing to do with that. I, I was very intrigued by something you said a moment ago, which is that our tax code does not reflect, and I'm paraphrasing, I hope I get this right, 2,500 years of <laughs> experience. So I'm fascinated to know if there are ancient lessons from prior you know, prior societies on taxes. And is this what you're referring to, that what apolitical people think about taxes? Yeah. yeah the, the basic principles of tax are, first and foremost, ability to pay. That's the number one principle. You, there's no point in trying to tax desperately poor people. They don't have anything. Uh, the second principle is convenience. It should be easy to pay your taxes. The third is timing. In, a, in an agricultural society, you want to collect taxes after the harvest, not when farmers are borrowing money to buy equipment and seed to plant in the ground. And you want the tax burden you have to be understood. You should know what the rules are and know what to expect so that you can plan in your business. We have a society now where you can have two families who make the same income, have the same number of children, both own homes for the same value with roughly the same mortgage terms, but who will pay wildly different amounts of tax depending on some decisions they make. For example, do they rent the house or own it? Uh, do they save in a 401k plan pre-tax as almost everyone does or post-tax with what's called a Roth? Uh, do they get benefits that aren't taxed? Does one person, because they run their own business, have to pay for their income, their health care? They, they get a deduction for it, but they pay for it. Or someone else, it's an add-on to their pay. So there, there's two things to think about here. One is vertical progressivity. The more money you make, the more wealth you have, the more capacity you have to pay taxes, and you are, in effect, giving back to the society that made your riches possible. Because if we don't have a civilized society and you live in the jungle, then whatever group of thugs come along can just steal what you have. The other principle is horizontal equity. Uh, taxpayers who make roughly the same income should pay roughly the same tax. We end up with a country now, though, where people with similar incomes can pay wildly different tax bills, depending on whether they own their home or rent, save in a Roth IRA post-tax or a regular IRA, as almost everyone does pre-tax, whether they get untaxed fringe benefits or have to buy their benefits out of their after-tax income. And we have a situation where we know, because of IRS documents that got out, that we have people who have fortunes literally in the hundreds of billions of dollars who pay no tax. So the principles of progressivity and of equity among similarly situated people that have gone that go back 2500 years, those are just totally violated under our system because the American tax code is the most political law we have. And these violations aren't random 
Uh, on the issue of horizontal equity, we had uh, Dorothy Brown on the podcast a while back to talk about her book, The Whiteness of Wealth. And she points out the many ways the tax code, maybe not intentionally uh, always, but the tax code is written in ways that tend to benefit uh, white households over black households. Yeah, Dorothy Brown is one of our best scholars on the discriminatory nature of tax. When you hear about critical theory, mostly we hear about it in terms of race theory, but there's critical accounting theory, critical tax theory, etc. And in critical tax theory, you look at the law and say, gee, that appears to be fair and equal to everyone. And then when you look into the detailed rules, the administrative procedures, you discover, well, no, that's not equal at all. It's, it's quite unequal. Critical theory is simply about looking beneath the surface to see how systems really operate, as opposed to the textbook ideal version. David, as you look around the world, whose tax system do you think most closely resembles the ideal? I think that everybody has gotten away from this. We have a global economy, especially when we're dealing with great wealth and large corporations. And we have only four significant accounting firms. We call them the big four. When, when I was a young man, there were eight. There are now just four. And those four firms who you'll see their names on big office buildings in cities from, from New York and uh, Houston and Sydney, Australia and Hong Kong, these firms are at the epicenter of tax avoidance, whether it is legal tax avoidance, tax avoidance through buying political favors by getting uh, special laws passed, tax avoidance by underfunding the tax police, that's what the IRS are, they're the tax police, so they can't do their job, or outright evasion. And accounting firms should not be big drivers of an economy. They should be servants of an economy. But because of the capacity they have to distort economic reality when it's seen by the tax authorities, they become enormously powerful and influential entirely on behalf of very large wealth holders and people with very large incomes. And we have people in America who make, in some cases, millions of dollars per day. Uh, I'd point out that uh, Larry Ellison, uh, the head of Oracle, his dividends per year are over $1.8 billion. That's more than $5 million a day. And that's just one of his sources of income. And yet I probably pay a higher effective tax rate that is a larger share of my income in taxes than he does. Yeah. And no doubt I pay a higher tax rate, effective tax rate than Nick does. Well, I can't know for sure because, Nick, you don't do your own taxes. I do right? not. So you, you don't really have a good idea of how much you pay. Yeah, but I think it's, it's higher now than it used to be. I mean, you know, the, the, cap, so. the cap gains <laughs> tax rates oh, went yeah. up and so on and so forth. And now you got to pay that in Washington State, yeah. unlike your old, your well, old friend if, Jeff. Yeah. If, if, like Nick, you're a significant wealth holder, and Nick is one of the most honorable traders to his class that I know, um, <laughs> how much you pay in tax is mostly a function of how willing you are to pay money for tax avoidance vehicles. And some of them work. Some of them work but shouldn't work. 
and some of them are outright shams. I mean, there's a reason I was called uh, many years ago by a prominent uh, Duke University law professor, the de facto chief tax enforcement officer of the United States, because I was exposing these uh, sham tax shelters and business owners, small business owners who were boasting, well, I haven't paid taxes for years. I tell everybody that I haven't been arrested. So you see taxes are voluntary. By the way, every one of the 15 guys I exposed went to prison and some of them died there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine went to prison for four years. He didn't shelter his own money. He he owned a company that cooked up these tax shelters for other people. Yeah. Um, and he, he he offered one to me, but we passed. We were like, Smart no way. Smart move, Nick. No but there, way. I mean, there are tax shelters that, that work. And, and here's one of the most fundamental principles in tax. Any tax advisor who's sophisticated will tell you that a tax you can defer for 30 years is no longer a tax. It is a source of profit to you because the earnings by investing the unpaid tax dollars will vastly exceed the tax on which, by the way, during the deferral, there's no interest. So if you owe a thousand dollars a tax, you don't have to pay it for 30 years. You'll pay it in dollars of 30 years from now. That'll be worth, what, 40 cents on the dollar, maybe. And you'll have earned all this investment income. And while you'll have to pay taxes on that investment income, nonetheless, you'll end up with more than $1,000 adjusted for inflation at the end of the 30 years. And that's one of the big games. Now, for you and me and everyone else, we have a limited time in which to do this. The clock is going to run out on us. But corporations, they exist forever. And if they run out of the life's blood of a company money, guess what? We put them through bankruptcy, we inject new money into them, and they go on as zombie corporations. They can exist forever. Right, my my uh, stepfather is uh, an accountant, a retired accountant, and he once told me that the four rules of tax accountancy are defer, 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 and die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did not. I did not know that. Exactly I like correct. The, I like the first three. I'm not crazy about the fourth. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe you're rich enough that you can avoid that, Nick, but for the rest yeah. of us, not so much. Uh, so, David, what are the most nefarious practices? I, I mean, I do have you a... you looking for tips, yeah, Nick? Well, I mean, I do have a team of people who do this, but we, we are very conservative in the sense that we assiduously avoid anything that smells like a dodge. Well, that may have been the first time I've ever heard somebody describe you as conservative. Yeah, now. yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but what are the what are the most nefarious practices? Yeah, well, let me just lay down a little track about that though first, Nick. There is a big range of attitudes about tax shelters among both individuals and corporations. There are companies that, when somebody shows up wanting to sell a tax shelter, tell them get out of our building, and the other people are like, yeah, you got any friends? You want to bring them? And the same thing applies to individuals. Uh, because there are so many different options about this. You can be so conservative, you can do what the New York Times did. The New York Times was so worried about its public image that the way they arranged the purchase of the Boston Globe about 30 years ago caused the New York Times for 11 years to pay a corporate tax rate of 77%, even though the statutory rate was 35%. And the reason was they couldn't deduct the goodwill of the Boston Globe, which was most of its value. I had just left the paper when I revealed this, and I assure you they were not happy that I had pointed this out. 
so one of the biggest ones that's easy for people to understand involves real estate. So you, uh, as an investor, uh, usually with other investors, you buy a building. You get to depreciate the value of the building. That is, the building, in theory at least, wears out a little bit each year. So over a schedule of a couple of decades, you write down the value of the building because you're supposedly going to have to replace it at the end. And those write-downs, you get to deduct against your other income if you do it the right way, your salary, dividends, interest, capital gains. And it shelters some of your money. But 20 years later, when you go to close the real estate deal and cash out by selling the building at a profit, the government is supposed to recover the depreciation that you wrote down. And you're supposed to pay taxes on it. So if you wrote down a million dollars over the 20 years, you sell the building for $5 million more than you paid for it, you're supposed to report $6 million a gain, the $5 million more than you paid for it, and the million dollars you wrote off over the 20 years on your tax return. This kind of cheating involves hundreds of billions of dollars a year according to Jerry Kernut, who was the Internal Revenue Service specialist who figured out what was going on. He had every real estate and other partnership tax return in America on his desk at the IRS. And the way you cheat is very simple. You just don't check a box. That's all you have to do. If you just don't check the box, unless you're audited, and partnerships are audited roughly one in 500, and you would have to be audited the year of the closing out of the deal, so the odds are tiny, why you just go on your merry way and you get that million dollars you wrote off tax-free. Jerry was given all sorts of awards and bonuses by the IRS. They sent him around the country to teach people in every big city uh, who audit for the IRS how to catch this kind of cheating and the number of cases the IRS has actually brought, as best I can tell from the public record, are zero. The number of cases in New York State, which is a major center of this kind of cheating, not one since the 1980s. And that goes to, we don't have enough police, enough tax detectives to police the system, and so people just get away with this stuff. And imagine that you had invested in one of these, and you had this big profit and the IRS comes after you, as happened in Pennsylvania after they hired Jerry Kernut uh, following his retirement from the IRS. Pennsylvania is almost the worst state in the country to detect this kind of cheating because of peculiarities about its tax laws. The company that he caught that owed a, a fortune, or tens of millions or maybe a hundred million dollars in taxes, they immediately hired lawyers and began consuming the resources of the state to fight them, trying to get them to settle for pennies on the dollar, which is very often what happens. So so at the risk of poking a bear here, is this some of, of uh, what Donald Trump has done to, you know, he brags about paying low taxes. Donald is a blatant tax criminal. And I'll give you my <laughs> two favorite examples to establish this, and you'll see that. Eight years ago, I broke the story that Donald Trump had been tried twice for tax fraud, income tax fraud. Now, these were civil trials, not criminal. He lost both cases. In both cases, he had submitted as part of his tax return 
something called a Schedule C. That's what gig employees and freelancers and sole proprietors do. There, there are many millions of these that the government receives every year. Well, this company didn't exist. It had no revenue. It had no business records. Donald took over $600,000 in deductions, even though he had no receipts, no evidence of anything. One of the two judges who heard this case, these were city and New York state trials, put Donald Trump's longtime tax lawyer, Jack Mitnick, under oath because the tax return in the public record did not have what's called a wet signature. There was no ink pen signature on it. And he asked uh, Jack Mitnick, Trump's guy, did you prepare that tax return? And Mitnick said, uh, no, your honor, neither I nor my firm prepared that tax return. Donald Trump forged his own tax return by forging the signature of his tax guy. And uh, he lost in both cases. He had to pay the taxes he owed. But he was put on notice by doing this, that this is illegal and you may not do it. Well, you know, when we got Donald Trump's tax information recently, it turned out that in the recent years, including when he was president, he created about 65 similar phony companies that have no business, they don't exist, and he took deductions for them. And in fact, I wrote a piece in the New York Daily News to saying to Alvin Bragg, the district attorney there, you've got an easy to make fraud case here. Donald Trump was on notice that it's illegal to do this. He did it 65 times in a couple of years, and you can easily convict him of tax fraud for doing that. And I suspect if, if we had tax transparency like we used to have when tax returns were public literally 100 years ago, 1924, uh -huh. we would discover lots of this kind of tax cheating, Goldie. Let's use that. Let's transition there into uh, how to fix the system, because that's a proposal I've seen uh, put forth a number of times that we should. A big fix would be just making tax returns a public record. So... Nick, you could see my tax return. I could see your tax return if I had, you know, several weeks to do that reading. And uh, but but what else? What else might uh, would you propose to address this egregious tax system we have? Well, first of all, we don't need to make the tax return public. What we need to make public is here's your income and here's the tax you paid, uh, okay. so that people will check up on one another. And it used to be until about 50 years ago that you could ask the IRS, you know, hey, my neighbor Joe here, did he file his tax return? And they would tell you if that person had filed their return and paid their taxes or, or had an agreement to pay them, which is the functional equivalent. And Congress stopped that. And the argument is that this is a private matter. You think between Google and Apple and all the data companies out there that they don't know in roughly how much money you make, Goldie, or I make? You know what our house is worth. I mean, that you're you're a city school teacher. It's public record. My wife was the CEO of a six hundred million dollar charity. Her salary was public record, and the commercial purveyors all know roughly what kind of income you have. So the I'm not impressed with the we have to have secrecy argument. Right. But there right. are right. I use things. A, I I use a f tax filing software. They know. Yes. So there there's some simple things. I propose in my forthcoming book to simplify the tax system. The first one is, you know, in, in America, one of the things we have are two income tax systems, separate and unequal. 
Workers have their taxes taken out of their paychecks before they get the money, and wherever they work, there is a person, usually an executive, who is personally responsible for making sure the taxes are withheld and turned over to the government, because if they don't do it, they are personally liable for those taxes, so they make sure they get paid. But if you are a sole proprietor, if you're a book author like I am, if you are the owner of your own business, you take money out of the business whenever you want and you settle up with the government later. I propose that we go to a single system. Nobody can get money until a trustee has withheld the taxes and make sure that they get turned over. And then we're all treated the same way. Similarly, I would end the system under which very wealthy people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk uh, live by borrowing against their assets. Uh, until very recently with inflation, if you were wealthy, you could borrow against your assets for 2%. I know that because I'm not, not a rich, rich guy, but I was able to borrow at 2%. And who would pay the government a 20% capital gains tax rate when they can borrow against their assets instead? And then the next year, if you're wealthy enough, you roll your loan over, you take out a new one. So if, if you have a billion dollars and you need $5 million a year for your a lifestyle and you just keep running up the loans, you'll never pay hardly anything uh, in, because you're paying interest at a tenth the rate or maybe just a quarter the rate of the lowest government tax rate. Right, because you'll never realize your gains. So you'll never, never pay a capital gains tax. I would like to mention though, you can do this. And for Bezos and Musk, of course, it makes perfect sense because when you have fortunes that large, it's impossible, almost inconceivable so that something bad could happen. But my God, in the tech business, there are so many stories of people who tried that gambit and then the stock went down 50 or 75%. And now uh, you have these giant loans and uh, the loans are called right? Because your collateral right. is no, no longer Absolutely. big enough. And then you have to sell the stock, which generates a taxable event and bankruptcy follows. I know a bunch of people who have done that. Will, will somebody not think of the poor billionaires like Nick instead of just focusing on the rich billionaires no, no, no. like I, I, Elon I, I, and Jeff? I'm, I, I just <laughs> want to say I am 100% with David uh, on this on this yeah. practice. It's, it's ridiculous that somebody like Musk and Bezos don't pay any tax. You should just, I don't know what to do, but if you have it more than a billion in assets or 500 million or whatever it is, you just will pay a minimum tax. This right. strategy only works if your fortune is, you know, a, a maybe a hundred times larger than your annual consumption. Yeah, astronomical. And, and, right. And you and you have to have a large part of your fortune in assets that we used to call blue chip assets, not highly speculative ones, where the stock runs up and then bingo, it's, the company's gone. But they're always fools being separated from their money because they think they can get a they can get a free lunch. What else would you do? This is a little off tax, but it's the center of tax. If we had the French or German healthcare systems, and the French system is the best in the world according to every study that's ever been done that I'm aware of, it would save us about 6.3% of our gross domestic product. It's gone down a little bit now, maybe just at 6%. Now, does that number mean anything to you? I mean, I deal with this all the time. 6% of GDP, what the heck is that? Let me give meaning to that number. All of the income taxes paid by people who make less than $500,000 a year 
equal what we spend on health care above the French and the Germans. And they have universal care. We only have 90% coverage and another 30% of people have crummy coverage. Uh, nobody goes bankrupt and loses their home in France or Germany over medical bills, but it happens all the time in America. What I'm giving you is a statistical number because there would obviously be effects from having a universal national health care service. But even if we couldn't raise the threshold for income taxes to a half million dollars a year, by the way, uh, that's most of the taxes come from people who make over a half million dollars a year. What if we could raise it for $100,000 for one person, $200,000 for a couple, or even $50,000 for one person and $100,000 for a couple? It would have enormous beneficial economic growth effects for America. So that's another thing that I would do. And then here's one of the most important things we should be doing with tax. I propose that we have something called a LIA, a Lifetime Investment Account. So you are able to save and build up some money and you have uh, done pretty well because you bought Apple stock or some high-tech stock. And you say, gee, I really want to get out of that and I'm going to buy electric utilities because they're a lot more stable and they pay a dividend. Well, you go, oh, a big capital gains tax. And so people hang on to the risky tax because they're risk averse and they don't want to pay the tax. Under my plan, all your stocks and things would be held in this LIA. You could own your business in a LIA. If you want to sell Apple and switch to electric utilities, you would not owe any tax at the time, except on money you withdraw from your LIA to spend. Each of us would have an individual account. When you die, as we all are going to do, the taxes that are in that account are due. Wouldn't you rather pay a tax after you're gone than during your lifetime? Now, what about your spouse? Well, under my plan, your spouse can use your box until your spouse dies. And uh, what happens if your spouse, as happens in Japan, marries a much younger person to avoid this and do it again? Uh, that doesn't work. My box, my wife can have when she dies, my box gets emptied and her box gets emptied as well. Is this pretty much what you're describing? Is it like a traditional IRA in which you can put as much money into and but take money out of at any time uh, and just pay taxes on the money you take out? Goldie, that's exactly what I'm proposing. You wouldn't get a deduction for the money you put into the plan. You'd put in after-tax money and as long as you leave it there, you can trade this company stock for that company, do whatever you want with it. There's no tax effect. But when you withdraw, now you owe your taxes. And when you are run out of time, then you're going to owe the gain, your taxes on the gains. Would this be in addition to Roth and traditional IRAs or just like replace them both because it actually has features of both? I, I would replace all of those things. Complexity is the friend of the chiseler and the cheat. I want to simplify the tax code. Uh, I want to make it as simple as it can be with, with, and eliminate loopholes and try very hard to have a system that treats everybody equally and that meets the uh, ancient principles of uh, ease of paying, etc. I love it. Yeah, okay, so we've gone a little bit over time, which is fine, uh, but we should wrap it up, David, and you've answered in detail uh, one of our 
uh, big questions, which was, if you were a benevolent dictator, what would you do? Uh, and you have explained that. But uh, one final question is, why do you do this work? I've always been very interested in power and the exercise of power. And I had a, a very unusual sort of upbringing. Uh, my mother was a di an only child. It was a disowned heiress. And my father was a disabled World War II veteran, a very smart guy, but he had only a third grade formal education. And I watched how the system and employers and whatnot treated them. And it made me very interested in how people exercise power. And many people are prudent and thoughtful and caring, but there are a lot of people who are bad actors. And far too often, our laws and policies help the bad actors and punish people who behave well. And I've been trying to show that in my journalism since I was uh, 17 years old. That's a beautiful story. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being with us and thank you for your work and uh, continuing to try to put pressure on where pressure is needed. And clearly it is. Yeah, and when do you think your uh, the book you're working on will come out? Well, I put this book aside, Goldie, when Donald announced in 2015 because, <laughs> you know, I knew him better than anybody else in yeah. journalism, and I, I knew my peers would not cover him, and they did not correctly. They don't understand to this day. Um, but I'm hoping to have it done the next couple of months, and I will tell you the tentative title of this book is The Prosperity Tax because we always think of taxes as something that can destroy but a properly designed tax system actually can make us better off. That was a fascinating conversation, and there are so many dumb things in the tax code that make it easy to cheat. But, you know, there is a bigger problem with the American tax code, which is just the way in which it's been influenced by neoliberal ideas. For example making income from things like dividends lower than income from from work. We used to have these terms, Nick, you're old enough to remember, we used to talk about earned income and unearned income. Earned income was what you, it was just like a paycheck, what you got as a wage. Yeah. Unearned income was interest, dividends, yeah, and capital gains. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I do believe that there should be some incentive to invest. So pick a threshold where, you know, if you make an investment, a long-term investment and, and sell that asset and make some money that, it, you know, some amount of that return is taxed preferentially. But the idea that somebody can make a billion dollars a year on dividends or whatever it is and pay less tax as a percent than somebody who is working for a living is absolutely absurd and it's just criminally stupid and i suspect that as much cheating as there may be and and sort of nefarious tax avoidance in the system just the upside down nature of it i think is the bigger problem yeah it's all it's all interrelated and of course it, w what you end up with is a uh, tax system that exacerbates uh, inequality in our system, in our economy, and that leaves the government without the resources to address many of our needs. And it's, and I thought it was particularly interesting the way David brought up uh, our healthcare system, 
which, you know, tying together the these two incredibly broken and inefficient systems, healthcare and taxes, that in fact, if you had a more efficient healthcare system, if you had a healthcare system like in France or or Germany or just about any other uh, developed country, we would have so much more of our GDP to spend or to keep individual families to keep to spend on the things they need, it would actually allow us to tax at a slightly higher rate that would pay for other things we need. Absolutely. So it's a, um, I don't know, it's yet another screwed up part of the great American economy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the greatest no. system on earth, apparently. Yeah, no, it, it, it is, it's a sad story. And it's hard to imagine a, a political scenario that would straighten it out. Over time, it just seems to get, you know, kind of worse and worse and worse. Every layer of tax reform actually makes it probably worse in ways. I think, Nick, you and I actually, you know, looking back on this conversation, it may not be the most coherent conversation we've had because we have not spent maybe enough time thinking and talking about this. So it's an yeah. issue I think we're going to have to come back to in the future. Yeah, I think you're right. If you want to read more from uh, David K. Johnston, uh, you can find his books at your local independent bookstore or, you know, at that big online monopolist. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.